0: Good morning. Would you go ahead and join me in opening up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. It's page 980 on a blue pew Bible that will be in front of you. If you don't have your own, we'd love for you to join us there. Well, as we, and we uh, now continue in our third week of our Philippians series, we are going to be in a passage this morning that spotlights the power of imitation. The power of imitation. If you uh, just observe people in your life, uh, any age, any area, any place, you will find that people are imitators. We are hardwired to see and hear things in others and then do those same things ourselves. And we all do it, but we do tend to kind of think of this most often in, um, in little children, that little children... Uh, love to imitate. And, you know, uh, we have a daughter who turns three next month, Brinley, and she's in that life stage where she is smart enough to imitate others and young enough to be totally unashamed of the fact that she's imitating others. And she does not care who notices. And so she gets to a point where she can, even when she's playing on her own, she will imitate other people in her house. So she has an older brother who is five, and so I will find Brinley playing with dinosaurs and trains by herself, just playing like she does with Caden, and it's honestly a little alarming how good of a T-Rex roar she has (laughs) at age almost three. and so she'll imitate Caden. And, and then we'll find she's imitating mommy and daddy in the way that she uh, carries babies around and she loves putting her babies to sleep and she loves feeding them and putting them in for a nap. And uh, she will come, go put a baby in her bed, walk out of her room and just yell, and do not call me again, bye! And she'll just walk out. <laughs> and Rochelle and I are just like, oh no, this is, uh... Oh, no. Um, and with me, she loves tackling, and she loves uh, playing with any kind of ball. And then, um, to my shame, she will find my AirPods, and she'll put them in her ear and call them Daddy's Earrings. <laughs> and, uh, but she'll kind of walk around, and she sees Dad with the AirPod, and I need to reevaluate my life. Um <laughs> but she kind of shows us every day that it's an innate desire to imitate others, to mimic the way people in your life that you look up to, and act like them, and talk like them, and live like them, and it's cute, and it's kind of funny in young children, but we have to be honest, this never stops being true of us. We as adults, often just feel like we can't make it too obvious that we're imitating others. So we become a little better at hiding it, but we are very aware of seeing other people and trying to mimic what they do, trying to get their results. Uh, think about it professionally. People at work that you are uh, constantly reading or listening to podcasts or trying to imitate other people in your field that you see as successful. Think about it relationally. You notice how to act as a boyfriend and girlfriend, how to act as a father or a mother, as a husband as a wife as a friend we are always on the lookout for others who are doing other things well that we want to do and imitate them and i wonder if you really to be honest and just think about to yourself for a moment who are you imitating right now in your life in your current life stage who are you imitating And imitation, um, if we're not careful, can lead to negative behavior. You can lose a sense of yourself. You can try and be somebody you're not. You can get frustrated when you feel like you are perfectly imitating somebody, but you're not getting the results that they're getting. You're doing what they're doing, but they're far more successful than you are. And it could lead to negative emotion and idolatry and covetousness. Because there are landmines everywhere with imitating but imitation in and of itself is not inherently bad. It's not inherently wrong. The questions are, who are you imitating and why? Well, again, we're in now the third week of our series in Philippians. Thank you to Pastor Jeff for faithfully bringing the word last Sunday. Um, Paul is writing to this church in this little city called Philippi. And our aim this morning in our passage is to imitate the Apostle Paul, but not for the sake of Paul. As he writes to another church called uh, Corinth, he writes in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he tells the church there, imitate me as I imitate Christ. See, Jesus is our Savior. He has saved us from sin, but he's also our Lord. He's our chief example to imitate to love others, to have compassion, especially for the least of these and the marginalized, to commit to truth and stand on that truth, to even suffer well for the sake of the gospel. You see, imitation can be great in so much as the people we're imitating are pursuing Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. And so we're going to finish chapter 1 this morning uh, we're picking it up at verse 19, technically, the end of verse 18, but um, we're just going to read the first couple verses here as we unpack this passage. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. First way we want to imitate Paul is relying on Christ. The transition that we just read that that Paul makes at the end of verse 18, he segues from kind of past and present rejoicing to future rejoicing. Uh, So Pastor Jeff covered last week how um, Paul uh, says he's rejoicing in prison even while other people are insincerely preaching the gospel because his primary aim and his primary passion in life was the advancement of the gospel. So those guys and what they're doing, their motivations are off. Paul's saying, yeah, they're trying to stick it to me, but the joke is on them. He said, God will deal with their motivations. Listen, motivations matter, and God will deal with that. But as for me, as I'm sitting here in prison, I'm just rejoicing because the gospel is going out. And so I rejoice in that, and then he makes the transition. And yes, I will rejoice. So now it's going from present to future, For, there's your ground clause. He's about to tell us why. For, I know that your prayers and the help of the Spirit will turn out for my deliverance. The most important part of understanding this passage is that word deliverance. There's two ways you could read it. One is to say, Paul was confident he was going to get released from prison, he's in prison and that he's going to get out. I'm going to be delivered from prison and be able to go preach the gospel freely once again. That's one way to look at it. I don't think that's what he means. The word there for deliverance could also be translated salvation. So this is the deliverance into the kingdom of God when he stands before the Lord and is told after he dies, well done, good and faithful servant. And the reason why I think that is what he means is because Paul will not get freed from this prison that he's writing from. He hopes to, he's prepared to if he gets freed, but he's writing this from the city of Rome about 10 years after he planted the church of Philippi, and a couple years before he'll be put to death. So we're talking about Acts 28 range is where he's writing this letter from. Church was planted in Acts 16. He's in prison in Acts 28, and Paul will not get out. And on his mind is a more important deliverance, where Christ intercedes for him, and he is delivered into glory with his Savior. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.8. 2 Timothy is also a letter that Paul wrote from prison. This one was written at the very end of his life to his brother Timothy, and he indicates the same line of thinking in 2 Timothy 4.8 when he writes, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So not physical deliverance from death in this world, but ultimate deliverance from death in eternity. And I think as we keep reading, we're going to be told more and more, it's going to become clearer that that's actually what he's talking about. I know this will turn out for my deliverance and is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but with full courage, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, I might get out and I might die here. And either way, Christ will be magnified in me, so we're good, and in that I will rejoice. That is super powerful. And do not let that gloss over you. When, when Paul says hope, he's not using the word like we often use it. It's not like, I hope the Yankees are going to win the World Series this fall. Or, I hope the Jets will win a Super Bowl before I die. <laughs> like, that is weak Hope. And that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is confidence and assurance that something will certainly come to pass. Jesus is our hope, and that is strong hope. Here's the thing about Paul. Relying on Christ is the first thing we need to notice and we need to imitate in this brother because he is super confident, but he's not self-confident. I want you to hear that correctly. He is super confident, but he's not self-confident. And that is the posture of a maturing believer. And when we think about confidence today in our world, it's a very attractive quality we think about in others and we hope to have in ourselves. When we say somebody is confident, that is an affirmation of them, right? To have confidence is be able to walk into a room and command the room. And it's kind of palpable. It's not cocky. It's not needing to be self-promoted because confidence does not need praise. It's just this kind of unshakable person. And, And if you think about confidence, it can be difficult to explain. If you had to explain with your words a confident person, it's kind of hard to find the words. So it's difficult to explain, but it's very easy to recognize, isn't it? Like someone who's just confident. And we tend to notice it in others. We tend to wish we had more of it in ourselves. But we can be guilty, I think, of this too, just immersed in our culture, where we call this self-confidence. And we encourage each other, or we teach our kids to be self-confident. And we talk about being sure of yourself and caring yourself a certain way. But I want to be very clear. Christians are not supposed to be self-confident. That is anti-gospel. We are not self-sustaining. We do not find strength within ourselves, listen, because it's not there. Paul's confidence was strong, but it relied upon Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit, not himself. And it relied on the prayer of others. He says, I know that your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so, just a kind of a side note from this sermon do not work towards being self confident. Do not teach that to your children as being this kind of really enriched affirmation that we need to strive for. The Bible does not call you to be self confident, the Bible calls you to be confident in Christ and to be confident in a community of believers that you know is praying for you. And, and kind of um, what we see, again, in this spirit of imitation, so kind of another just point of application here, Paul provided us a grid right there of how we should pray for others who are suffering, and how we should ask for prayer from others when we're suffering. It is good and it is okay to pray for deliverance in this world. It's okay to pray that the cancer would go away and be healed and go into remission. It's okay to pray for doctors and for wisdom that an illness or an injury or chronic pain would be removed. It's okay to pray for those who are suffering in a relationship of any kind would be reconciled. But beyond that, the most critical prayer that we need is that Christ would be magnified in our lives no matter the result. So again, we talk about prayer requests that we get, you write in the cards, you fill it on the app, and every Tuesday our staff prays through those by name. We love doing that. There's a lot of suffering on that page. It's kind of a weighty time for our staff. We're kind of just going. There's a lot of just needs. Right, and so we see somebody who's just been diagnosed with cancer, and we pray and we pray for the treatment, we pray it would go into recession, and we pray that Christ would be magnified in their life no matter the result. That if they're a believer, that just Christ would be evident in their life through this trial that they're in. And if they don't yet know Christ, we're praying for somebody. Um, who is related to somebody in this church who does not yet know you, our prayer every time is for healing and then beyond that, that Christ would use the circumstance to draw them near to himself and save their soul. There's a book, it's in the library, called The Insanity of God. And it chronicles Christians worldwide who are being persecuted for their faith. Um, just like Paul was here in the first century. And Nick Ripkin, who wrote the book, he writes this at the end that I could not have underlined it in bolder print. He writes this. This quote will be on the screen. Ruth is his, hus- or her, um, is his wife. Ruth and I have seldom encountered a mature believer living in persecution who asked us to pray that their persecution would cease. We have never heard that request Rather, believers in persecution ask us to pray that they would be faithful and obedient through their persecution and suffering. That is a radically different prayer. The reality is, if you comb the scriptures, you won't find Paul or anybody else asking for prayer for a circumstance to end. You will always find prayer that they would be faithful through the circumstance, no matter how it ends. Brothers and sisters, our reliance on Christ is not that he will make everything go well for us. Our reliance is on that he would be magnified in our lives no matter what. And that's the prayer of a maturing believer. This is what it is to be a confident believer. Needing the spirit in us. Needing others interceding for us. This is how we imitate Paul. Let's keep going. Convinced of this, I know that will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Number two, living and dying for Christ. It's the title of this sermon, Living and Dying for Christ. Um, Philippians 121 if you've been around church circles for a while it's this kind of mountain peak verse it's one of the most quotable verses in Philippians and amongst the most quotable verses in the Bible and it has this kind of shock value to it to live is Christ and to die is gain and standing alone which often you hear that just kind of a you know standing alone out of context it's kind of shocking it's kind of even alarming like what's he mean by that But when you understand the verses that come before it, just like we went through, doesn't it make much more sense? Paul's hope was not rooted in his release from prison. It was rooted in his release from sin that has already been accomplished through Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But here is why this verse is so powerful, not to just hear it, not to be able to just quote it, not to put it on a coffee mug or a T-shirt, but to actually live it out because when we believe this, I mean really believe this, to live as Christ, to die as gain, you cannot be defeated. The Christian who lives out Philippians 1.21 is invincible. There is nothing that can hold you down because tying to the theme of joy that I spoke about two weeks ago and Jeff spoke about last week, your joy is not for sale in this world. It's not contingent on your circumstance. And the believer in Jesus Christ, through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit within them, cannot lose. If we live, we live for Christ. It's a joy to live for the one who paid it all for you. To live as Christ is to be Christ-centered in all that we do. That's why it's in our vision statement, Christ-centered worship and community and service and mission where nothing is detached from your faith. That is our hope for our people of Grace Church, that we would grow in the knowledge that there's nothing in your life that is detached from your faith. So your marriage, Christ, ought to be in the center. In your work, it's for Christ. In your friendships, it's for Christ. In your hobbies, what you do when no one's watching, it's for Christ. The point of our life is to know Christ and to make him known. This is the best possible life. This is not the easiest life. It's not the most comfortable life. It's not a cakewalk to live as Christ, but it's the best. And if we die, we get to be with Christ. And it's a joy because you are reunited in spirit with the one who died for you and get to experience eternal communion and glory. It is the ultimate win win. For the church. This is the power of the cross and the victory it has accomplished. And so Paul kind of just, he brings us into his own mind, his own subconscious, and he kind of walks through. He goes, guys, if I live, all right, I get to get out, and I get to just keep doing what I'm doing. And you know what? Pardon? You know, we, obviously it's clear to Paul. He thinks this is a possibility. He doesn't know he's going to die there. He kind of hopes he can get out and um, in some ways just continue to encourage the church. He kind of thinks this is where it's headed. But If I die, then great. I get to go be with Jesus. And and we read of that, and that seems radical to us. And that can be so foreign to our experiences because most of us, if not all of us, are in a life stage where we're like, we're not suffering like that. I'm okay with being with Jesus, but I want to wait a little while. I got some things on the calendar. But for many brothers and sisters in Christ across the world, this is water in the desert. The book of Philippians is such a gift to cross-cultural missionaries. And if you love missions, you probably love Philippians. Because this persecution is especially relevant right now in the nation of China, where the church has been growing and the government crackdown has been increasing And in December of last year, I think I've um, talked and prayed for him once or twice since December, but there's a pastor named um, Wang Yi, I apologize if I'm saying that wrong, he was arrested in China for preaching the gospel, and he told his church that if he was arrested and not released within 48 hours, to release a statement that he wrote called Faithful Disobedience. I encourage you to read it today. Go online, you can find a PDF, Faithful Disobedience by Wang Yi. I want to read you a portion of it now. And as I'm reading, remember, this is not 60 AD, this is 2018, on the cusp of 2019. He writes this, it'll be on the screen, you can follow along. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom, that I might take the gospel to them separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. And so, respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands. For why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I? Jesus is the Christ, son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my king and the king of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant, and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness, those who resist God, and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. Christianity has spread over the last 2,000 years not because of skilled preachers and awesome rock bands and megachurches, but because of the legacy of men and women who have suffered and died for their faith. To live is Christ, for him to be magnified in your life, in the way you live, with love and compassion towards others, and a resolve to make him known. And to die is gain, to be reunited once again with our creator, declared righteous because of the work of Christ for all of eternity. The opening of that famous phrase often gets overlooked. For to me. Paul indicates this is a personal decision. For to me. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Hear me. Everybody is going to make this decision. Everyone will answer the question, to live is blank. So what's in your blank? What's the one thing you live for if you had to boil it down to one word? The gospel of our culture says often, to me, to live is pleasure. To live is success. To live is freedom, meaning personal freedom, to do what I want. To live is prosperity. I want to encourage you that any answer other than to live is Christ." Death becomes a tragedy. But for those who are living and dying for Christ, both are a joy. Death for the Christian is not the lesser of two evils, it's the greater of two blessings. Both are a joy. And this is why the church will continue to spread. No matter who does what, any government, anywhere across the world, it will not stop. And the gates of hell will do nothing to prevail against it. This is the movement that you and I are invited to be a part of every single day. In this, we imitate Paul. Let's finish the passage. Verse 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have third way last way we imitate paul representing christ So you come off that mountain peak verse, to live as Christ, to die as gain, and then what's the practical exhortation? Okay, that's, that's true. What's that mean for my life right now? And Paul answers this. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Wow. There is no higher calling than to let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ to live a life that is worthy of the man who laid it all down for you. And if Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians that I mentioned earlier, imitate me as as I imitate Christ, if he's going to say that anywhere in the book of Philippians, he would put it right here. What a privilege it is to do this. And wherever there is privilege, there is responsibility. We have a member of our church, Elaine Sullivan. She's been coming to Grace for a long time, No, attaching no number to it, and she's also a faithful member of the missions committee, and from the moment I started serving on the committee years ago, I, I, I recall, this. I don't think I even said this to you, Elaine, but whenever she was asked to pray for the committee or pray for a meeting, she'll start it like this, a phrase you will hear her say, Father, what an awesome privilege we have to serve you in this way. And then she would pray that we would step up to the plate and do the workplace before us. Wherever there is privilege, there is responsibility. And what an awesome privilege it is to be counted righteous as a child of God. And therefore, what a responsibility we have to represent Christ to one another and before a watching world. So at this point, maybe you're asking, hopefully you're asking, okay, I understand why I want to do this. What the heck does that look like? It's a great question because Paul is going to give you two broad answers. What's it look like to live a life that's worthy of Christ? First, that you are standing firm in one spirit. This is important. You cannot do this alone. You cannot stand firm in one spirit by yourself. And when he says you, he doesn't mean singular you, alone, at home. He means you, plural you, meaning that you cannot live a life worthy of the gospel, divorced from the church that we apply this together. And just like we need one another to be confident in the faith and we need one another's prayers, we need one another to stand firm. And it goes without saying that standing firm in the faith in 2019, that's kind of a difficult ask right now. In a world that is tugging at us every rich way, to buy into a cultural doctrine, to justify behavior that is contrary to the gospel because, well, it's 2019 and everyone's doing it. This is just the way it is. It's tough to stand firm there. So stand firm in the gospel and do it together. And then second, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. So you have stand firm and then strive forward side by side. Again, you can't do it alone. This is corporate application. This is us together. We need one another to be obedient to God's word. And by standing firm and striving forward, it keeps us from fearing a world around us that is trying to tear down a gospel and promote an alternative gospel in its place. And and, and Paul does this often, all throughout his letters. He especially will continue to do it in Philippians, as we'll see week after week. He uses these physical word pictures to kind of paint a picture of what we should be doing, how we should be living. And often they conjure up thoughts of like a sports team or an army together. Stand firm, strive forward. And so if you were ever in the armed forces, if you ever were on a sports team, you probably understand this even a little bit more, of what it looks like to not back down from a fierce opponent. I I know personally, um, in playing basketball, when I step onto a court and face the team that looked like they were just going to destroy us, I went to Little Midland Park High School. Every year we played Patterson Catholic twice. Our gym was full those days. Not to watch us, but to watch how many times we got dunked on. Okay, like they they just would destroy us every time. But I remember kind of going out going, listen, you just got to go out and you got to play. You can't just show fear here. You got to kind of look the part. There's a classic scene in the movie Hoosiers. Also read that this afternoon. No, watch it. All-time sports movie. And it's highlighting a high school basketball team in the 1950s. And it's based on a true story. And Gene Hackman is the coach of Hickory High School. And they get to the championship game against the South Bend Central Bears. Which apparently is a powerhouse of a team. And the kids from Hickory, there's this scene where they walk into the arena where the game will be played. And it's a huge arena. And they walk in, and they're just kind of starstruck. And the camera goes to their faces, and it just lets this look of fear, like we don't belong here. And in this scene, Gene Hackman pulls out a measuring tape, and he gets somebody on the team. He says, hey, go measure the free throw line from the baseline. And he says, what's the number say? And the kid goes, 15 feet. He says, huh, just like our little gym back in Hickory. And he gives it to another kid, and he goes, from the ground up to the rim, how many feet is that hoop? The kid says, 10 feet. And he goes, wow, just like our gym back in Hickory. You'll find those same measurements. And in this way, he's telling his kids, this moment is not too big for you. You can handle this. You can be here. And, of course, they did win with the good old white picket fence play. You remember that? No, you don't. Okay. <laughs> just know this. If you're in the driveway, it works every time. All right? All um, right. But Paul was Gene Hackman before Gene Hackman. He's telling the church of Philippi, you have no reason to fear. You can handle living a life worthy of the gospel before a world that disagrees with you because you have been equipped to do so. And that same power that raised Christ Christ from the grave now lives in you. That same spirit that descended upon Jesus at his baptism now dwells within you. And as silly as this illustration might sound, many Christians walk around their life in today's world like those kids in Hoosiers, just a look of fear on their face struggling to have confidence that we won't be just overwhelmed and swallowed up by a culture that wants to marginalize belief and and wants to make you think you're crazy to believe some of these things, or that you are on the wrong side of history, you just wait. And you're a bigot if you do not change your views on certain areas, and it strikes fear in us. And so we need this word today, Church, stand firm in the faith. Stride side by side in the faith. Do this together. You were never meant to do this on your own. We need one another in the church. But as we close, here's where the illustration between Philippians and Hoosiers now differs. In the movie, they could have still got creamed. Um, they, they, They could have lost. But remember, in Paul's mind... For those in Christ, it's win-win. We don't need to defeat the world. Christ already did that. He broke the power of death when he died on the cross. Death died when Jesus rose again. And so we don't need to condemn the world we don't need to act like they are a team to be defeated. We don't need to get behind our keyboards or our, our iPhones and condemn a world on the internet or ridicule others or act like there are people in the world we need to beat. And I don't care what any renowned pastor says on CNN or Fox News elsewhere. That's not a life worthy of living of the gospel. We're not called to defeat the world. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Jesus won that victory our job is to walk in that victory and reach a world, not defeat it. And we're here to rely on Christ and to live and die for Christ and to represent Him to a world by standing firm together in the faith and striving together in the faith to make Jesus known. And where necessary, to suffer for His sake, just like Paul did just like millions who have come before us in the history of the church have, because if we get beat emotionally, if we get beat socially, if we get beat physically, we still win. Because we're either going to reach others for Christ, or in our suffering, Christ will be magnified in our lives, but either way, God's going to get the glory. And the church is going to go forth. And we will enter eternity justified and forgiven, fully loved by God. So fear, thank you very much, but no thank you. You can't control us anymore. This is a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it's the only life worth living. What a privilege. What a responsibility. Let's pray.